That's been one of, my, one of my favorite songs for the last few years. It's like every year, occasion, it seems like every year, God will drop and deposit a song into my life. Sometimes an old song, sometimes a new song that breaks me down, strips me down. And this was one of them. I listened to this song hundreds of times over about a six-month period of time. Before I would come in here and preach, this would be the song I would pull up on YouTube. And I would watch the, the music video of No Longer Slaves that would like, get me ready to come in here. There are sometimes people who say that the best preachers are preachers who don't have an agenda. And I think they lie. I do have an agenda. That I do want to be a person and a man of God, a person of God who stands up in front of you. And my agenda is I want God to use me to help set people free and draw people closer to Jesus and rebuke false idols in our lives so that we can become everything God wants us to be. And I think one of the reasons I'm drawn to this song is that throughout my life, God has set me free from things and then I make choices to go right back into what held me in bondage in the past. And when, uh, if you listen to the song, when it comes to like the child of God part, Melissa, who sings the song, is yelling this verse, like yelling the lines. I was talking to someone and they were like, I can't really listen to the song because I feel like someone's yelling at me. And my response was, I think I was at a place in my life when I first heard this song that I needed somebody to yell that truth into my life, that I am a child of God. Let me pause just for a moment. I also want to welcome all the guests who are here. I see a lot of faces of some people I know you. I don't know your name. Some people I've never seen before. I want to welcome you to our church today. If you're looking for a church home, a church family, we would love for you to come and join us here and all that God is doing. I want to welcome those who came to the girls' conference this weekend. If you were a guest who is with us today from the girls' conference, will you just raise your hand where you are? We just want to acknowledge you. Can we show them a sycamore view? Welcome. And I know Anna did this earlier, but can I just see a show of hands for everyone who volunteered uh, yesterday in this past week at the girls' conference? It's a show of hands. Thank you for all you did. <clears throat> we cannot do it without you. I want to thank Sarah Brooks, if you'll just raise your hand where you are, for being the keynote speaker yesterday. And from what I've heard, you brought the best preaching that Memphis is going to hear this weekend. So I thank God for all he did in you. This, this song, No Longer Slaves, it's, if you listen to the lyrics, it's, it was born out of the story of Exodus, which is where we've been the last few weeks and where I am today. There's this whole idea of God like parting the sea so we can walk right through it, that what God did for the people of God coming out of Egypt is the same thing God does for us today. He loves setting people free, that we're no longer slaves, and we got a journey into this new land of freedom. In Exodus 14, this is where this story happens. In my opinion, many would agree. This is the greatest story of the Old Testament. It's the story that highlights Jewish festivals today. Jesus ends up bringing the ultimate Exodus that was built on the Exodus of the Old Testament when Jesus came to set everyone free. In Exodus 14, you had this time where the people of God have come out of slavery after hundreds of years of being held in bondage, and they're moving to a new land, though they don't know where they're going. And they come up to a sea where there are tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of them who come up to a sea and they, they, they're kind of stuck. And when they turn around, they see that Pharaoh and all his people are now chasing after them. So they think they're, they're going to die. And then God intervenes and God steps in. And there's this little verse in Exodus 14, 14 that Moses says, hey, you all need to stay still. God's going to fight for you. 
There are times in our lives when God's going to give us responsibility and he's asking you to do things and he's asking you to participate with God. And then there's an occasion or two where maybe God comes and says, hey, you need to stop doing things. Stop forming subcommittees. Stop trying to think through all your agendas. Bow down, surrender to me, and watch what I'm about to do. And this is what God does. He parts the sea. And they go through dry ground. You'll see it in Exodus 14, beginning in verse 29. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. And that day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses' servant. So here what God does when he sets people free is he's going to teach them what it means to fear God. But he also teaches them what it means to have a loving God. That our God isn't just one who wants you to fear him. He also is inviting you to come into relationship with him because he loves them. So that brings us to the hoopah that's been up here the last few days and last few weeks. And I want to get to that in just a moment. Because when God sets them free, there's big celebration that happens. In Exodus chapter 15, verse 1, you have the first song that happens in Scripture. Genesis, they don't sing in Genesis. There's no four-part harmony in Genesis. If they did sing, we don't have stories about it. Exodus 15, the song of Moses is the first song in the Bible. The last song in the Bible you have in the book of Revelation, again, is a song of Moses with kind of a different twist of the ultimate redemption God is bringing into the world. So here's the first song that we have. is a song born out of deliverance and freedom, and it's Moses. And Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. Both horse and driver he is hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. He is my God and I will please him. My father's God and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. And it goes on through the rest of Exodus 15. There's great celebration. Even when God commanded people to have festivals year after year, many of the festivals were about celebration and rejoicing and dare we say it, throwing parties. I've been asked to keynote an event later on in February down in Houston, Texas. The theme of the weekend is reckless love. And they've built this weekend out of Luke 15. So they've asked me to come and preach five times on Luke 15. And in Luke 15, it's a story of lost things that are found. Lost coin, lost sheep, lost son or sons who were found. And at the end of every story, there's a celebration and a party. So we were on a conference call a few weeks ago, this planning meeting for this conference... And as part of it, they said, what should we do Saturday night? And I said, hey, let's honor Luke 15. And what do you guys think about us throwing a party? And there was silence for a moment because like, how many Christian parties need to be out there? But we sure do need more of them. So in a few weeks, we're throwing a party on a Saturday night. And they're putting a lot of money into it. And we're going to celebrate because the people of God, we should celebrate better than anyone else in the world celebrates. At some point, we made this really bad mistake where we thought, well, spiritual maturity and fun can't go together. And God asks his people to celebrate and to celebrate big so that when everyone else in the world asks, why are you guys celebrating with so much energy and excitement? The response is, God has done so much for us. How can, how can we not celebrate all that God has done? So I preached a, a sermon out of Luke 15 early in my preaching career about, hey, whenever the lost are found, the church should throw parties. We shouldn't just pat people on the back and say good luck in life. We should celebrate. That's what Luke 15 says. That's what Jesus commanded people to do. 
And right after I preached that sermon, like two weeks later, we had a 19-year-old kid who had been struggling out on drugs for years. God broke into his life, surrendered his life to God. He was baptized on a Sunday night. And then it's like the whole church just looked at me. I was like, what? And they're like, well, are you a person of integrity or not? You told us we throw parties when the lost are found. So that night we ran down to the store and we got cake and we got candles and we got, we got drinks. And we came back and, and we threw a party because the lost was found. Exodus 15, there's singing and there's rejoicing. In fact, Miriam like takes the baton from Moses. And in Luke, uh, Exodus 15, verse 20, it says, Then Miriam the prophet, Aaron's sister, took a tambourine in her hand. And just a reminder for all the acapella people here, tambourine back then meant pitch pipe. It meant, uh, <laughs> it meant tuning fork, all right? She's just trying to get the pitch to lead four-part harmony as they celebrate what God has done. She takes a tambourine in her hand. Which, by the way, this is the first possession that is found when the people of God came out of Egypt. That of all the possessions they took from the Egyptians, all the cooking utensils and things they could pile into whatever their U-Hauls looked like back then, they had tambourines, which is an instrument of celebration. Because they, they didn't know what God was going to do, but they knew God was going to do something worth celebrating. So they, they pull out the tambourine in her hand, and all the women followed her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. Both horse and driver, he's hurled into the sea. So there's great celebration that God has set people free from hundreds of years of slavery. But then here's the question. What happens when the joy of deliverance fades away? Like what happens when God sets people free and you've got this emotional or spiritual high? You've come out of church camp or a mission trip or a Sunday morning service or God worked in your life some other kind of way. Or you're coming out of a girls conference and you're excited about what God has done. And then what happens a few weeks later when the joy of that deliverance fades away? Because here's what happens. You have three different complaint stories. Let me read them quickly. The very next verse, Exodus 15, 22 through 24. Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went into the desert of Shur. For three days they traveled in the desert without finding water. And then they came to Merah, and they could not drink its water because it was bitter, and that's why the place is called Marah. So the people grumbled against Moses, saying, what are we to drink? They grumbled, saying, are we there yet? How much longer do we have? I'm hungry. I need to use restroom. True, it won't stop touching me. No, it won't quit mocking me. I need to use a restroom. And then my response is, well, there's grass. You want me to pull over? You can go right there. No, I need to go in the restroom, in a place, so that when I come out, I can beg you to get a snack off the shelf. I mean, it's, a, it's just how it works, right? And I know what it's like to have water that's, that's bitter. I married a woman from Lubbock, Texas, Okay. I love Lubbock, but the water's not good. It's, I mean, what do we have to drink? It's bitter water. They're crying out. What do we have to drink? And God provides for them. Then a few verses later, Exodus 16, verse 2 and 3. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron again. And the Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted, but you brought us out into the desert to starve this entire assembly to death. So this is just a few weeks out of slavery, and now they're like, maybe things weren't so bad back in Egypt. I mean, we were in bondage, and yeah, we were slaves, but at least we had food to eat. So God provided for them again. This time what God was going to do is every night before they went to bed, God was going to bring quail. He's going to bring meat, and they were going to have it. And in the morning, God's going to provide for them again. He's going to provide bread. 
This is the diet that almost all of you in this room want, but you know you can't have it. God didn't drop no green beans from the sky here, all right? There's no broccoli being offered up. This isn't God saying, how old are you? You've got to eat that many pieces of vegetable. This is bread and meat, amen? This is bread wrapped in bacon, turkey bacon back then, all right? But, but, and in the morning, they're red lobster biscuits. I mean, this is bread and meat every day God's going to provide. A few verses later, Exodus 17, 1 through 4, the whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin. And this is all within just a few weeks. Traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim. There was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there. And they grumbled against Moses. And they said, why did you bring us out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? And then it says, Moses cried out to the Lord, what am I to do with these people? And I, I love the image here. It's not like Moses removes himself from the people to go cry out to God. It's like right there among these grumbling people, Moses is like, God, these people are killing me. Like, do something. Every parent's done this before, right? And my kids are just doing crazy stuff. And I'm like, in their presence, where I know they can hear me. I'm like, God, if you don't come, and give me strength right now, God, I'm going to say things or do things I know you don't want me to do. So in the name of Jesus, God, no, I'm trying to lead them to your throne. Help them, help me. And I want my kids to hear me crying out to God. Moses in their presence is like, God, like, what do we do about all the quarreling? So they're, they're released from bondage where they've been slaves for years. And now we need water. We need food. Why don't we just go back to Egypt? And this is all within just a few weeks. And then you get to Exodus 17, verse 8. And they look up and the Amalekites are coming to attack them. So now they're in a battle. Moses is like, how many of you want to fight? And people raise their hands and they fight. And there's this really cool scene in Exodus 17 about God winning a battle for them. And then you turn the page to Exodus 18, verse 13. And what you have, the next day Moses took his seat to serve as judge for the people. And they stood around him from morning until evening. Now, a few weeks out of slavery, there's a line of people with Moses as the judge because the people can't get along. They're already upset with one another. They're stealing things. They're frustrated. So here's what I want you to know. Exodus 14 through 18 is only about two to three months of time. That's not much. And then Exodus 19, things slow down. But what God was teaching his people is the journey to freedom is often what forms your identity. Not the destination of once you arrive in a free place. It's the journey that forms character and identity. The people in my life I want to model my life after, the people I want to mentor me, the people I want to study and watch are people who have been through the mess of life, yet they're still people of strong character. They've been through adversity, yet they're still soaring on the wings of eagles. People have been through it. That, that the journey to freedom is what forms who you are. God's not saying, hey, wait until you get to heaven, and then in heaven is when I will firmly establish your identity. It's God saying, hey, right now, I'm inviting you to come with me, and I want to teach you and show you who you are right now and who I've made you to be. It's the journey that is forming us. They kept wanting Egypt. They're released from slavery, and they keep wanting to go back, and I think we do this more than we would admit. They end up wanting to go back to bondage too. Because when the initial joy of freedom fades, what do we do? 
if impurity has been what has held you in bondage in the past. Maybe porn addictions. Maybe um, connection and relationship with people outside of, outside of marriage. And God sets you free. And there's this new commitment in your life to purity. And then you slip up. When you slip up, do you go right back to bondage? Or do you allow God to take the slip up and then to lift you up and to keep you moving into freedom? If food is what has held you in bondage in the past and you make a new commitment to wanting to take care of your body better and you slip up and you have a binge in an afternoon or maybe a few days or maybe a few weeks, do you allow that slip up to take you back to bondage or for God to pick you up from the slip up and to lead you into freedom? Right? Isn't this what happens? So what? We come out of bondage, there's this new commitment, and then what? Because Satan and the powers of darkness want to work in our lives to try to convince us that your mistake is your identity. That your mistake is your new reputation. That this is who you are. And honestly, sometimes the pain of the journey to freedom often makes us say, maybe things weren't so bad back in bondage. One thing I love when I get to hang out on Tuesday nights with Celebrate Recovery is one, they are celebrating recovery. But it's two, I mean, it's a room full of people who are acknowledging week after week that they have not arrived at recovery. And that they know that what has held them in bondage in the past is still knocking on the doors of their hearts, wanting to hold them in bondage again in the present and in the future. So they're coming together to celebrate and to worship and to form community to let people know that we are on this, we're on this journey to freedom. So from Exodus 14 to 18, we're just talking about two to three months. It's a few weeks where people are moving through a wilderness in a desert, they're grumbling, they fight a battle, they already have lawsuits coming at one another. And then Exodus 19, through the rest of the book of Exodus, through all of Num uh, Leviticus and part of Numbers, all happens within 11 months at Mount Sinai. God sets them free, they're moving for two to three months, and then God says, hey, okay, I need everybody to stop. Set up camp right here at Mount Sinai because before we go any further, I've got to teach you and I've got to provide some laws and principles trying to teach people who've been slaves how to be free. So they set up camp and they stop and God teaches. And God invites people under what is a hoopah. In Exodus 19, it's this cloud, and there continues to be this thick cloud that God provides where he invites people. And this is where God's going to establish identity. It's where God's going to set them free, and it's where God is going to establish priorities for their lives. Because anytime we want to be set free and we come out of bondage, if we don't have priorities in check, before long we're going to end up right back in bondage, Right? How often do you hear people say, I'm a really good Christian, and then the way they describe being a good Christian doesn't really sound like anything Jesus would want of a Christian? You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm a good Christian. I think I have my priorities in place. I, I pray first thing in the morning, and I read a verse. But what you want to say is, yeah, but you're a jerk from two to six, like every, every day, right? Like, I'm, I'm a good Christian. I go to church. I tithe. I don't cuss. I don't, I don't do drugs, and I don't thank people who do all of those things. I'm a good Christian. And I wonder how many Christians today have spent more time over the last two months trying to convince people of whether we need a wall or not need a wall, more time than they've spent in the last 10 years trying to convince one person who's disconnected from Jesus how much they need Jesus in their lives. So when our priorities aren't straight, what happens is we give in to false gods and we have false motives and our moral compasses are off. 
So what God does when he's setting people free is he's trying to teach them priorities. He's trying to teach them, okay, look, for you to live into what it means to be free people, here's what it's going to take. And the first thing God says is, hey, I'm the only one. So there are 10 commandments, and we've walked through these over the last few weeks, where the first three are directed to God. It's about God and what he wants for people. So he is inviting men and women and children up to the mountain, where he provides this thick cloud where God invites them into relationship. And then you have God talking to him about a Sabbath day and talking to him about honoring parents. And then last week, I, I walked you through commandments six through nine about relationships that God wants to set relationships right to. And I've saved commandment number 10 for one day because it needs its own day. In Exodus 17, the very last commandment is this. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servants, his ox or his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Don't covet. And Jewish rabbis have taught for years that God was very strategic in placing the 10th commandment as the 10th commandment, not the 5th or 6th or 8th. And what Jewish rabbis have taught for years is this, that if you attempt to live and honor the first nine commandments, you will not want to be somebody that you're not. That if you attempt to live in honor, the first nine, you're going to be so confident in who you are in God that you're not going to want to be someone else. Rick Ashley, my good friend, he says this, sin lies in the heart long before it shows in the hand. So before it plays out in your life, it's a desire or a false desire that is born and that grows within there was a cartoon years ago in a newspaper. Uh, newspapers used to be those things that would show up at your house and you would open them up and you would read them. There was a cartoon in a newspaper. And it was a cartoon of a fence that divided this field. And, and the fields, were, there were two pastures and both pastures were the same size and they had the same color of grass and a lot of grass, lush grass, beautiful. And each pasture had a mule, one mule each. And the mule in one pasture had its head through a fence eating from the mule of the other pasture. And the mule in the other one was doing the same thing. And the mules were stuck in the fence trying to eat each other's grass. And the headline of this caption was discontent. And, and sometimes it's true. It doesn't matter how great life is for you. We want what other people have. If you were to show me, if I was somebody who didn't know the Bible law, didn't know the Ten Commandments, and you had me read through the Ten Commandments, I think the first nine would make sense to me. I think I could kind of wrap my head around it. Like, okay, I'm not supposed to misuse the name of God. Uh, okay, don't commit adultery means I'm not going to cheat on my spouse. Don't murder means I'm not going to take someone's life. But when you get to this last one about not coveting, I would have all kinds of questions with this one. Uh, well, what do I do in its place? Because it's the 10th commandment, like, don't do this, but it doesn't let you know what to do in its place. And then, like, like it just brings up all kinds of questions. I mean, is it, is it wrong for me to have a desire for something? Is it wrong for me to, like, at some point, want a newer iPhone because I saw someone else who had it and it looked really cool? And even if I wait until I know I have the money for it, is, that, is it wrong? Rick actually, again, he said this. He said, the root of coveting is dissatisfaction with God's allotment of things. If you look at the Ten Commandments, number 10 and number 1 kind of go together. I mean, no other gods before me, 
And number 10 is you don't covet anything else. You'd be so confident in who you are in God, you're not going to want what other people have. Don't covet anything they have. Henrietta Garrett was a woman. She was born in the 19th century, and she was born into a working-class family. She married a guy named Walter Walker Garrett. Walker Garrett was, in the 19th century, late 1800s, was a multimillionaire. Think about that. The 1800s, multimillionaire. He got a lot of money. He was in the stuff, snuff business. And when Walker died in 1896, his will was that his wife, Henrietta, would form a will, making sure all of their money, all of their estate, went to uh, charitable organizations and institutions. Because Walker didn't want his wife having aunts and uncles and cousins and all of his sisters coming after her for all their money. So it was his wife, hey, my will is that you're going to form a will and spread this money out for the good of the world. Henrietta died in 1930, and guess what? She didn't leave a will. And if she did, it was either lost or a maid stole it. Or some people thought it was buried in her casket with her. So many people were trying to like dig up her grave. They had to put armed people, armed police around her grave to keep people from it. Over the years, 1930 and a few years after that, 26,000 people came forward trying to say they had a connection to this family. 26,000 people from 47 states, and we only had 48 states at the time, from 27 countries, involving over 3,000 lawyers trying to say, hey, we have a connection to this family. We need some of their money. And though that may seem a little dramatic and a little out there, how often in our world today are we just reaching for more and more and more because we're not satisfied with what we have? There's this verse, and I know a lot of you know it, in James. And it's, uh, it's the verse that you do not have because you do not ask God. And a lot of times we use this verse about our prayer lives. Well, let me show you the context of this verse in James 4, 1 through 3. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires of battle within you that you desire but you do not have? So you kill, you covet, but you don't get what you want. So you quarrel and you fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your own pleasures. In Romans chapter 12, verse 15, it says, Rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. And I bet for most of us in here, it's a lot easier to mourn with those who mourn than it is to rejoice with those who rejoice. Charles Spurgeon says this, I never knew a covetous man to be converted. Why? Because a coveting heart has no room for God. So let me give all of you, from the youngest to the oldest, four principles of how to combat coveting in our lives. And here's what I want to leave you with today. Number one is this, contentment. It's a word we love and a word we hate, right? Contentment. And I think contentment gets at God's desire for this 10th commandment, that we've got to be content with who we are in God. And I know this is easier for some people than others. I know there are people in this room that when you look at your desk at your house, it's a stack of hospital bills and you know the relational dysfunction in your life and contentment is, is so hard for you. Let me just share a few verses to maybe encourage you. Philippians 4, there's this verse and many of us know, like I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. But here's the context of that verse, beginning in verse 11. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances 
I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. It's this trust that, that God's going to provide. In 1 Timothy 6, 6-8, through 8, Paul writes this, But godliness with contentment, godliness with contentment, this relationship with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Like There's this real call to like simplicity in our lives. I, and I've talked about this in the past. I remember early on in my ministry here, I had a Sunday where I was talking about bondage. And it's probably a greatest mistake I've made in my preaching career here. Okay, I, I remember one Sunday, I was given forms of bondage, and I said something like, well, I said, it wasn't something like, I said, if you're, if you're here today and you have over 25 pairs of shoes in your closet, you are in bondage. And, and there was a petition, I think, that started after that sermon of trying to get signatures, either get me fired or suspended without pay. I don't remember. I remember going home. I was like, Casey, I like, really upset some people. There are people mad at me. And Casey's like, you're on your own on this one. All right? like, <laughs> she's like, you can, you can talk about people's hearts and their minds and challenge their bank accounts. But Josh, one thing you cannot do is do not mess with women's shoes, okay? Ever. <laughs> Is this called the simplicity in every aspect of life? Of being confident that what you have is enough to make you right with God. G.K. Chesterton says this, There are two ways to get enough. One is to continue to accumulate more and more. The other is to desire less and less. Number one is contentment. Number two is gratitude. When people come to me and they want to talk about things they can do for their spiritual life and spiritual maturity, a lot of times what I ask them and encourage them to do is to have two minutes, maybe up to five minutes, but try two minutes a day where you do nothing but give God thanks, where you do not ask God for anything. You just give thanks. Give thanks for God's character. Thanks for God's nature. Thanks for God's work in your life. Thanks for what God is already doing in your life. Thanks for what God has done for you. Two minutes of thanks, and it will be, it's amazing what gratitude, a discipline of gratitude can do for someone's life. Number three is this. I encourage people to recite the Lord's Prayer every single day. For a while, you may have to read it. You may not memorize it. You may have to read it. After a few weeks, it will be memorized. It's our Father who is in heaven. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. The prayer is, God, just today, what I need for the day, will you give it to me? And the fourth is this. That God is establishing a new identity in you. That God has set you free or is in the process of setting free or wants to set you free and, and establish a brand new identity in your life. And this is so hard for, for a lot of you. The sermon I preached a few months ago, I remember I preached a sermon about forgiveness and mistakes. And I, I didn't know how many people would find me after that message. People who have, been, who have had mistakes in their lives have been hovering over them for decades, either questioning God's forgiveness or it's something that just keeps them up at night. Your worst mistake in your life does not identify who you are for the rest of your life. Even if dozens of people want to use that mistake to identify you, God doesn't identify you that way. God sets people free and wants to move them into freedom. There was a song God opened me up to last year a woman named Christine DeMarco and I'll end with this I want to ask if the elders and prayer leaders if you will go ahead and make your way around the room to receive people 
Christine DeMarco is a worship pastor out on the West Coast, and I don't remember where I found the song. I've, I, I like a lot of her music, but it's a song that she wrote about, um, I, I am not a victim. And this one line in the song is this. It's the bridge to this song, that I am who he says I am. He is who he says he is. I'm defined by his promises, shaped by every word he says. Any form of bondage has held you down in the past will knock on the doors of your heart wanting to keep you or bring you back in the bondage again, but you've got to rest today in the fact, no, God is the one who establishes my identity. God is the one who is leading me into freedom, and that is what we are pressing into. It's the song that we're going to declare right now in this moment, and it's why we set up people around this room to receive you and to pray. If there's anything we can do for you today, I ask you to find one of these people standing around this room while we stand and while we sing this song.